Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. And we're here to talk to you about mm, rule one that Warren Buffett said about investing, which is don't lose money. And how do you go about doing that? And how to integrate it into your life. Yeah, get your head screwed on straight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so we've been doing this based on uh, these last few podcasts based on what Charlie Munger had to say which I think is pretty awesome. He sat down with the BBC a couple years ago and said, okay, here are the secrets of investing. Boom, 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 boom. It takes one minute and we're going to run through them and again. I think this is the last time we're going to hear Charlie, this right? This is it. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll have Charlie okay. talk to us again. For this particular four-principle principle yes, set. Exactly. After you've listened to this, what are we on now? Like <laughs> I don't know. Times, <laughs> nine times, ten times, a hundred times, who knows? The craziest thing about this is I sort of feel like we're in this sort of um, you know, Jiro does sushi sort of a movie where you keep doing the eggs every day for 10 years and pretty soon you really get it. So we're Jiro's son in this situation. We're Jiro's son. We're 50 years old. We're never going to get our own restaurant. We're just doing <laughs> eggs. That's what we do <laughs> forever. But by God, we're beginning to get really zen on eggs, man. And every time I hear this from Charlie, it's like, Oh, there's another little opening up little wisdom chunk there. Yeah. So you keep listening because it's doing you good. And, and since this is the last time, can you tell us who Charlie Munger is again? Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's 90-plus-year-old partner um, who is the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway and has been forever and um, who also runs his own fund and invests at a rate of return of over 20% now for about 60 years. The guy's a really phenomenal investor and a really bright guy, and you really need to pay attention to him. He's one of the best, what we call, rule one investors in the world. Cool. Let's okay. hear from him. So he's on the BBC. This is on YouTube. You can find it under BBC Charlie Munger. It's, I think, the first thing that comes up. And it's about eight or nine minutes of packed stuff. I mean, we're unpacking yeah. one minute of We're just it. doing one minute. So here we go. Here's Charlie. We have to deal in things that we're capable of understanding. And then, once we're over that filter, we have to have a business with some intrinsic characteristics that give it a durable competitive advantage. And then, of course, we would vastly prefer a management in place with a lot of integrity and talent. And finally, no matter how wonderful it is, it's not worth an infinite price. So we have to have a price that makes sense and gives a margin of safety considering the natural vicissitudes of life. That's a very simple set of ideas. And the reason that our ideas have not spread faster is they're too simple. The professional classes can't justify their existence if that's all they have to say. I mean, it's also obvious and so simple. What would they have to do with the rest of the semester? Yep, it's all so obvious and so simple that we've been unpacking it for hours. And um, we could probably go on for a lot more hours, but we've got a huge amount of things to cover in this podcast for the next 50 years. So we're going to have to move on a little bit at some point. Well, he said, um, you know, something I hadn't really noticed before. We were talking last time about the difference between value and price of a company. And I just noticed, listening to it again, he didn't say a word about value of a company. He only talked about the price. Right, because the price is what you pay. And so that's, I mean, maybe it's more like the first three principles are about value and the last one is price. Well, uh, yeah. 
Except you can't, you, here's what you have to know. You have to know the value of the business in order to know that the price you're paying is sensible. Right. And that's really kind of what he's saying is we have to, you, you can't pay an infinite price. You have to pay a sensible price. You want a margin of safety price. He's saying price, price, price. But you can't get there without knowing the value. And so you have to know that fundamentally what Charlie believes is that price and value are different things, that, that price is what you pay, but value is what you get. And what Charlie's out to do is to get a quite a lot of value for a very low price. And in other places, you'll hear Warren Buffett talk about um, the simplicity of investing being simply to buy $10 bills for $5, and then you're certain to make money. Um, and this concept that it's possible in the market to buy something for half of what it's really worth is so foreign to the way um, people look at investing, the way your fund manager looks at investing, the way your pension fund is managed, the way the SEC requires financial advisors to understand investing, all requires that if you're going to get a, a high rate of return, you have to take a lot of risk for it. Whereas these guys are saying, look, I can double your money in a year. All I have to do is find you a $10 bill and have you buy it at $5. And you're going to double your money in a year or two years or five years, whatever. And you're hardly taking any risk at all. Those guys who invest in other like non-Buffett styles, I mean, they're looking at the backbone of a company as well, right? I mean, there's massive teams of research people who work for investment banks who are looking into companies and seeing if they are reliable companies or not. And there are ratings for companies. And I mean, they're, it's not like they're ignoring that whole side of things, right? Right. They're not ignoring that. You know, those guys are really good at, at um, parsing out a company and seeing if it's wonderful or not. Um, where the rubber, you know, or where, where their sort of car runs off the road for them, if you will, the reason that they don't beat the market uh, for any length of time, almost any of them, is because they have to deal with such a short time frame. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's time frame is decade, you know, 10 years. I mean, Buffett was on the air the other day talking about John Deere, and I think we mentioned this before, and he's basically saying, I know that in 10 years it'll be worth more than it is today. 10-year horizon is infinity for your fund manager. <laughs> he's hoping to be retired and sitting out on the beach in 10 years. What's the typical investment time horizon for a fund manager? Three months. That's Three yeah. months. That's short. Yeah, it's short. So, so that's basically from one quarterly report to the next quarterly exactly. report. And they wait to see what the quarterly report says? No, they usually are out of it in a month. Right. All they're doing is they're trying to catch a short-term ride. Um, they call this momentum investing, and your fund managers won't admit to it, but it is exactly how they invest. And in fact, an estimate was recently made that about 30% of the mutual funds are actually just shadow indexes. All they're really doing is buying enough of the for of the S&P 500 that if the S&P goes up, they go up. And if the S&P goes down, they go down. And they're just shadowing it. it I mean, in other words, you seriously, well buy an index. a computer could do that. <laughs> right? No big deal. And you're paying them 1% to 2% a year for something that has pretty much no value, which is why the guy that runs Harvard Endowment Fund said that mutual funds are the world's biggest scam. And we'll get into that maybe another time. But the, the problem that these guys have is that it's not that they want to be a scam or they want to you know be an index. 
right? They want to be active management and they want to show that they're really earning their money. But the problem they've got is that the pension fund managers who put the money in the mutual funds will take the money out if they don't perform at least as good as the market every month. They want to stay with the market. They'll give them two or three months slack, but that's about it. And then they start pulling money and moving it to a different fund manager. And individual investors do very much the same thing. They'll look at Morningstar and they'll see, oh, who's got the five-star ratings, you know? And they'll move to the five-star rating. And if it's not doing as good as the market, they'll pull their money. And we're full of cautionary tales in our industry about, be, you know, don't try to be a hero and make your guys a lot of money. What you need to do is just stay with the index because of guys like Julian Robertson and Warren Buffett himself have experienced the wrath of their investors when they have a year or two of sub S&P 500 returns. It doesn't matter how great you've done in the past. You, you, you have a year where you are not as good as the S&P and people start pulling their money, even individual investors, and even from Warren Buffett, which is why, by the way, I don't know if you ever wondered this, but Warren Buffett started off with the Buffett Partnership, which is basically a, a hedge fund. Back in 1955, 56, he raised money and, and began investing as a partnership. And a typical, they didn't call them hedge funds then, but basically he was one. And in 1960, late, late 1960s, he gave all of the partners their money back and said, go away. <laughs> I am now no longer running this partnership. That was after about 10 years. Yeah, it was a little longer than 10 years. And what had happened is he had a couple of years where he had relatively low performance, like a 0% return one year and maybe 6% one year. And um, what the reason he did is because he's not about to invest in an overly heated market and put money into stocks that are overpriced. And so he was just sitting on the sidelines mostly, and most of what he was doing wasn't making a lot of money. Now, at this point, Buffett had made about 36% a year compounded for his shareholders for a decade, per year, per year. Now he has two, yeah, off the chart, right? Wait, I'm sorry, that was during those 10 years? Yeah. I and mean, yet he had a couple of years where he made 3% or 6%? Yeah. So he Which must is, have just killed it in other years. Oh, yeah. He was doing over 50% a year in the first few years. And then as he got more and more money under management, you know, the returns naturally slowed down because it's a little harder to find good investments. The more money you get under management, the more it affects your returns. So so people started seeing that 3%. And they I said, mean, if I, if I had, well, had my money with somebody who was getting 50% and then went to 3%, that would freak me out. Would it freak you out? Yeah. Because, and it did. It freaks people out because they don't understand. You wonder if he's lost his touch. Sure. You wonder if there's some new market forces that he doesn't understand. Exactly. And all of that comes back to the individual investor. And even Warren Buffett didn't really understand his investing strategy. They don't understand what we call rule one strategy, which is to focus number one and number two and number three on just not losing money. That's the focus. Like in real estate, you know, the old thing was location, location, location. Mm -hmm. Well, in rule one investing, Warren Buffett style, Charlie Munger style, it's don't lose money, don't lose money, don't lose money. So if from Buffett's point of view, if he's investing in such a way that he knows he's not gonna lose any money, he's doing it right. From the investor's point of view, they think, wow, you went from 50% to zero. You must be doing it wrong now. Something must have changed. So yeah, they challenged he, him. So like Charlie said, you know, we have to have a price that makes sense and a margin of safety as well. I would think maybe he got the margin of safety wrong. 
Well, or maybe, he's maybe he got something wrong, and that's or, that's what or, I think. Or he's sitting in cash, and and the irony here is that every year Buffett writes this really complete letter that tells you exactly what he's done wrong and exactly what he's done right and where he thinks things are going and 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 you know he's such a good investor you would think that with this level of transparency people would have understood after 10 years what he's up to and that eventually the market changes and you get things back on sale again but they didn't and it was i think very frustrating to him he's never expressed this it's not in his bio it's just me as a manager of money putting myself in his shoes and thinking, my God, what a bunch of ungrateful bastards these people are that I've done this incredible rate of return. I've made many of them very wealthy. And now they're pulling their money out of my fund. Now they want their money back because I'm being careful. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's entirely a lack of understanding. Yeah. And a lack of faith. I mean, that's somebody, you know, that's when he was starting out. He didn't have 40 years of investing track record to point to at that time he had probably a decade like eight years yeah well a decade anyway yeah and my god if you can't get it okay in a decade you know so uh, it, it's endlessly fascinating how people's emotions overwhelm their common sense and their emotions took over in 1968-69 and they started pulling money and i think it frustrated buffett now, he's never said that maybe i'm completely wrong but i know he did this is he said, here's your money back. And you can either invest with somebody else, go away, or you can put your money with Bill Ruane, who's a friend of mine who invests like I do, but who's opening up a mutual fund and and he's happy to deal with your phone calls. <laughs> and so Bill Ruane, who is also a rule one guy from Ben Graham, um, who's trained the same way as Buffett, opened up the Sequoia Fund, which then became one of the best mutual funds ever run by anybody. Long-term rate of return, I think, in that mutual fund for 30 years when Bill Ruane was running it was like 18% a year through the 70s where it just went, you know, sideways. So the people who put their money with Ruane did well, you know. And then Buffett said, or you can buy this stock called Berkshire Hathaway. It's like $10 a share or something. And that's where I'm putting all my money. So you can put your money with me. But guess what? I don't have to listen to you anymore. Hey, number one. And number two, you can't pull your money out of the company. You can buy and sell the stock, but the company capital will remain mine to invest. And that's what I want now. I don't want to have you redeeming your uh, capital out of my fund right when I want to be buying stuff because it's cheap. Okay, so you are no longer going to play that game. Now we're going to do Berkshire, and I'm going to run it the way I want to run it and the way I need to run it. And, of course, what followed from that is just history. It's just phenomenal what happened to those people. They compounded their money, doubling it every three years then for the next 30 or 40 years. It's just like $10,000 became $40 million. So it's, you know, that was better than Ruane. Ruane was better than anybody else. And so whoever didn't put their money with Buffett or Ruane, you know, probably wanted to just shoot themselves 20 years later. So um, point being, to go all the way back to the reason I started talking about that, is that fund managers know this story. They know that even if you're Warren Buffett, people are going to take their money away from you when you sit quietly in the market waiting for the market to get cheap again. Um, The second story that I've got is Julian Robertson was probably the single most successful hedge fund manager in history. When Robertson invested from the 60s to 1999, when he quit, he compounded money, I think, prior to distributing money to his 
partners at 38% a year. Wow. Crushed Buffett's record. He's a much more active investor, a little bit different strategy, but still, the cautionary tale was the same. By 1999, in spite of the fact that Ruin or that uh, Robertson had turned in these unbelievable returns for you know three decades, people yanked their money out of his fund, redeemed. Now these are pension managers and all these guys. Because why? Because he was basically sitting in cash, sitting back, waiting for the market to come back to a reasonable value. 1999, it was an insane price in the market. That's when Yahoo was at 11,000 times earnings, and people were trying to shove their money into tech stocks. And so Robertson, he saw the bubble. Everyone else was freaking out, saying, why are you investing in these amazing high-rising stocks? Oh, gosh. Exactly. And you know what they did? They took their money out. And I watched him on television, on CNBC, just go, I don't understand what people are thinking anymore. So I'm quitting. And it was a big deal because he's like the best. He's like the godfather of hedge fund managers. And he was quitting because of people's insanity. And they were taking their money out and they're making him look bad. He had to redeem stuff at a loss and all that. So he just went, I'm done. And went off and just started investing his own capital. So these cautionary tales are not lost on your on your mutual fund manager. Mm-hmm. The mutual fund managers discover that, hey, guess what? I don't have to be Buffett or Robertson. I can actually do better than them, not by making a higher rate of return, but by just shadowing the market. Right. The incentives are extraordinary. The incentives are to have more money under management. Mm-hmm. Not exactly. to increase your rate of return. Exactly. Exactly. And so So the incentive is actually not aligned with the investor, with the with the investor who's investing in the mutual fund or the hedge fund or the pension plan, whatever. The incentives are misaligned there. They are. And you'd think that and they're misaligned because of the investors, not because of the mutual fund. They would all like to invest like Warren Buffett. It's not a secret how you make huge amounts of money with low risk in the stock market. But because the stock market thinks volatility and risk are the same thing, if your fund is more volatile because you're sitting in stocks while they're going down and even buying more while they're going down, uh, more volatile than a guy who's shadowing the index, they're going to they're gonna say you're riskier. And they're not going to recommend you to their clients who are saying, oh, I want low risk in my, my investments. It's so ironic. It's just mind-boggling. I mean, this misaligned incentive is extraordinary to me. And it's the fault of the investor. Yeah, because they're ignorant. Or they're being driven by market forces uh, of, of fear of losing their job. So you have two groups of investors, professional investors who run pension funds, insurance funds, banking funds, and who look to mutual fund managers and hedge fund managers as an outlet uh, for them to invest. So they're looking, they're kind of like fund of funds. You've got a big pile of money and you invest in people who run funds. And then you have individual investors who invest in mutual funds. And both of those groups are, in, are, are set up so that they're looking short term. Mutual fund investors get scared if, you're, if their mutual fund isn't doing as good as the market and they'll pull the money out and put it someplace where it is. And more and more mutual funds have turned into indexes. And now I think people are starting to realize there's no real point in investing in a mutual fund that's shadowing an index and paying 2%. Just buy, buy the index and you get the same thing. And so more and more indexes are coming into 401ks instead of you know broad market mutual funds. Or go buy a Vanguard broad market fund or something and not pay all those fees. So that's kind of happening just because people are starting to realize what I really want is just the market. 
you know, because everything else is just too risky, too much volatility. I mean, oh, there's so many stories about this. I can I can go on and on because, you know, we sit here on the other side of this just saying this is insanity. The, uh, the right way to invest is obviously the way Warren Buffett does it. You buy low, you sell high. Everybody knows that, but they can't do it because investors will not allow you to buy low. It's a little more complicated than that, right? I mean, you've said that you'll buy, let's say you buy low and then it goes lower and you'll keep buying. There it is. There's the catch, right? So if you sit in cash and then you buy low, and let's say you're buying a $10 bill at $5 and you're going, what a thing I'm doing for my investors. I'm doing this awesome thing. I just bought, I essentially just got them 100% return. I just don't know how long it'll take to, to actually go back to where it should be, but it certainly is gonna go there. And then it goes to $3. Now you can buy that $10 bill for $3, but the people who whose money you put in at $5 have now incurred a marked, this is some Wall Street gibberish, marked to market, which means they have looked at the current price of that stock, and according to the current price of that stock, they've lost 40% of their money that they put in there. Horrified. It, it, they're not excited that they can put in another chunk at a discount of 40%. What they're freaking out about is that their original capital appears to have lost money. And what they don't understand is that price is not value. If, if the whole time the value of the thing you've got was 10 bucks, then you haven't lost any money. At some point you're going to get, you're not selling it, so where'd you lose the money? And you get an opportunity to buy more. So think of a, a, like a garage sale, or, and, and let's say that you're an expert in mink coats. And all you do is you <laughs> actually have a student who, who does this. Really? She told me this story. Yeah, her whole thing is mink coats. Ooh. Oh, she makes a ton of money on this politically incorrect thing. Yeah, I don't like it. Oh, it's very smart. When okay. you think about it, just from a money, forget the values for a second, which you can't forget. You have to connect values to money. But for her, it's no big, she's fine with it. So think about it. It's a politically incorrect market. So there's a lot of emotion connected to owning a mink coat. And as a result, people will put $6,000, $10,000 mink coats in a garage sale and just get rid of it. Yeah, because you don't want it. And you feel a little like, And you like, feel yucky about it. I don't really want to sell it. I'm not going to really defend it. Although there it. is a whole school of thought that if it was already made and it's vintage, then it's, what can you do? Poor little animal. Yeah. You know, nothing you can do about that. You might as well wear it. I'm not saying I ascribe to that school of thought, but it does exist. Well, this girl is like, hey, I'm good with it. It's fine with my values. I'd wear a mink coat, right? And, I, and so she's... <laughs> she's out there looking for these this thing that's got a lot of emotion connected. And when there's emotion connected to it, people will price it irrationally. So instead of selling this $6,000 mink coat on eBay and getting it to somebody that would like it, people almost refuse to sell it. They just give it away. God, yeah, it's like blood money. To some people. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to just say, you have to, you have to apply your value. I'm not going to get into my values all on right, this. All right, all right. I'm blown away by this. I didn't even realize that there was a whole eBay world of terrible coats being sold, but okay. <laughs> but there certainly is. Uh, There's a market in mint coats. Just Absolutely. Like a drug market. Sure, okay. Oh, God. All right, all right. I'll all right, stop. I, so so, so I'll, I'll take the other side of She's connecting the emotion to the product. And so she goes out and so think about what she has to do in terms of what Charlie Munger has just told us. Is she capable of understanding the industry she's in? So let's think, can she figure out the difference between a real mint coat and what it's worth than one that's a fake? 
in between two mink coats, does she know which one's 6,000 and which one's 800, okay, retail. So she needs to understand that part of the business. And she also needs to understand why would these be on sale? What's the event that put this on sale that made it emotional? Mm -hmm. And so she understands that because she knows that mink coats are politically incorrect. A lot of people are getting rid of them because they don't like the idea that mink animals are being killed to create this coat. Okay, so she understands why it's on sale. She understands the business. She understands the difference between a good one and a bad one. Perfect. Now, she goes to this garage sale. She looks through all the stuff, and she finds one that's $6,000 retail value. That's what it originally sold for. And the people here want $100. She pays the $100, takes it to eBay, and sells it for 1000 So let's look at exactly what her risk is. According to the efficient market theory, that should never happen. No one should be irrational enough to sell a $1,000 value for $100. No one should be that irrational. But you're sitting there just going, yeah, but I would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds kind of efficient to me. I mean, how efficient is that? She, it, they literally gave away $900. All they had to do is put it on eBay. Right. I mean, I guess the internet is what makes that inefficient. Because without the internet, you wouldn't be able to find the market of the people who want to buy the mink coats. No, the and market's so, quite efficient. There's millions of people out there on the internet, on eBay, buying and selling all the time. Well, it's a very efficient market. That's what I just said, without market. the internet. Oh, okay, without the internet, yeah. it'd be less the efficient. The internet makes it possible to have that efficiency because you can sure. find the market for this, you know, right. so it's made it, device. It's, it's made it more liquid and more efficient and more information and all that. But still, the fact is that these people are reasonably intelligent people. They know the internet exists. They know eBay is there. They know they could put it on eBay, and they just don't because of emotion connected to that coat. And so th this this very thing, this is a really good metaphor for what goes on in the real markets. Um, when BP's well broke in the, in, in the Gulf of Mexico, the Macondo well, tremendous amount of negative emotion and political correctness came flowing into the market around the Gulf of Mexico oil drillers, and they all went on sale. Like even if they didn't have anything to do with that specific well, you could buy a really good, the safest well drilling company in the country and at that point in time was probably Noble Corporation. And they went on sale. You could buy this company for like, you know, 30 bucks, 28 bucks. Yeah, everybody suddenly became extremely aware of the risks of oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. The risks were there the day before and they were there the day after and they were there a week before and a week after. Yeah. People just became aware of them. And that's what caused all the selling. And the emotion of being involved in something that's politically incorrect. It's very politically incorrect to pollute the Gulf of Mexico and drown beautiful birds and make a mess of people's businesses. And all of that's massively politically correct. And so all kinds of people were basically calling their fund managers who don't have a, you know, a moral bone in their bodies when it comes to the money they're investing and saying, are you NBP or RIG or... Isn't that exactly what you've been saying, is that people should invest according to their values? Sure. And That's so those people, people are, were doing. Absolutely. And it created an enormous amount of emotion in the market and fear, right? So as these guys started saying, hey, get out of there, more people sold, and now you have this situation like a crowded theater that people are smelling smoke in. And the first people to the door are going to get out. The last people at the door are not going to get out, and everybody knows it. And so the fund managers, oh, you need to know something, by the way. These guys can't just exit a position. They're, by these guys, I mean the people who have institutional-sized money. 
when they try to exit BP or Transocean or Noble, if they took their money out all at once, it would crash the stock and they would be unsuccessful in getting their money out at the price they thought they could. How much money middle of the road does a typical institutional investor manage? Um, you know, medium-sized funds, institutional funds, let's say are, you know, roughly seven, eight hundred million to a billion. The bigger ones, Fidelity Magellan, these guys run upwards into 15 billion. Some really big ones like BlackRock, they're managing a trillion dollars. And how much money, again, middle of the road, total gas, would they typically invest in one company like, like BP? Well, they're usually going to be in for 1% or less. You know, typically uh, they'll have 100 companies to 200 companies in their portfolio. And therefore, any one company is a very insignificant portion of the portfolio. But because they have such a big chunk of money in it, it's, it's dozens of millions to hundreds of millions, that 1%. And so when they start pulling it out, it can be quite a big chunk of that day's trading and the market feels it. And so when it feels it, everybody starts to accelerate and get out ahead of you because they see this block of money coming in. So these guys have built computer programs that, that will do the trading for them and try to get them out at the best price. But Bill Nygren over at Oakmark Select which is, you know, medium-sized mutual fund. Bill said um, takes him six to eight weeks to get out. Weeks. And that's when there's not a panic going on. That's a really long time. Oh, man. When a well's broken and it's spewing oil, that's forever. Yeah. And the, the price is dropping a dollar a day, a dollar a day, a dollar a day, a dollar a day from 60 down to 30. Oh, my God, man. That's like nightmare. And so if you accelerate your selling, you accelerate the price drop. Right? When more sellers are out in the market than buyers, and there weren't a lot of buyers out there for BP stocks. So the price is really plunging, and it becomes very emotional. You're sitting there just going, my God, I had a really good year going, and all of a sudden, a chunk of my portfolio is getting crushed. You know, So you, you, you can see the emotion builds up on these guys, and they, they, they start to feel like somebody in a theater trying to get out that door. I, I, I take your point that there's some emotion. I'm not sure it's all emotion. I mean, there was a lot of new information that came up, and you talk about events happening. I think that was probably an event that could maybe make you change your opinion of a company. I mean, there was a huge lawsuit coming out of the government that you yep. know has been gone on for the last however many years. Well, Nobody knew how that was going to come out. We still don't. I think actually, I don't know if it's been resolved or not. Oh, they've they've hammered them about as hard as they yeah, can. Yeah, they got fined. I think, but. Anyway, I can't remember. The point is, there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of um, consequences that were going to come out of that oil spill. And nobody knew what those consequences were going to be. So wouldn't it be reasonable to change your opinion of a company at that point and maybe sell? Well, it certainly would be reasonable, um, particularly if you're in it at 60 bucks a share and you knew it was going to drop like a brick. Why take the loss, right, if you know it's going to drop like a brick? So... Even, I think, if you have the liquidity, like Warren Buffett said he'd love to be able to get out of Coca-Cola when it was price was dropping to $40 a share or something, but he wasn't nimble enough to do so. You know. Did you just say that you should sell when the price drops? Well, when you've got a big change in the story, then, yeah, yeah that's I think what you've got to reevaluate Yeah, that's what I'm asking about. Yeah, you got to reevaluate your New position. New information that changes the intrinsic characteristics of the business, right. changes the management. Right changes your understanding of what that company's all about. Right. And and even if you have something that doesn't change the long-term intrinsic characteristics of that company, which I think was the case with BP, 
still one of the greatest oil companies out there. If you like oil, it fits into your value set. That's a great company. I mean, they have, they're the best exploration production company in the world, in my opinion. They're, they're better at it than anybody at going into hard places and finding oil. And, um, and so if, and there's only like three or four companies they compete with in the world at the level that they're at. So this is a fantastic company if, you, if you're comfortable with their industry. Um, so the long-term intrinsic characteristics that make them fantastic hadn't changed a bit that day. They were always, they were going to be there. The big question is, is, would this bankrupt them? Exactly. That's the question. And Jim Cramer was on going, hey, this is going to bankrupt these guys. You know, get, get clear of it. Um, and so here's really something interesting about market pricing, I think, is that you can have a market price that's dead wrong. And everybody knows it. And yet that's the market price. Because pricing is a war between those people who think it's going to go up and those people who think it's going to go down. So BP went from like 60 down to $27 a share. Now think about this. At 27 a share, pretty much everybody in, involved in that stock agrees that's the wrong price. At 27 a share. So people can get together, have a bloody battle over what the right price is, and have it be exactly the wrong price, and everyone knows it, and yet that's the price. Because think about it. If the guys who think it's going to go bankrupt are right, then the price is zero. <laughs> right. And if the guys who think it's not going to go bankrupt, then the price is 60. It doesn't have a long-term problem. <laughs> what it isn't is 27. Got Everybody it. knows it's not 27. Okay? <laughs> so that, by the way, creates real opportunities for us with our options trading, which is something we can go into someday way down the line. But... In general, just looking at this marketplace, if you are in a company at $60 a share, and let's say you think that that's a reasonable price for BP, that's intrinsic value. See, our model is we're out at that price. We're going to buy it at a margin of safety price at, let's say, a $10 bill at $5. And when it gets to 9 or 10 bucks, we're a seller. We're looking to, to continue the volatility of our money and move it someplace else. If we've got a good place to put that money when it's back up to 10 and we've doubled our money, then we're going to probably move it to somewhere else. And this is very much Warren Buffett 101 back in 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, before he became so big that he can't do that. So as a small investor, we still can. Did you just say you would sell when the price goes down? When the price goes up to its retail value, then we're probably out. Oh, you would sell when it goes up. Yeah. So in other words, we wouldn't have been in BP at 60 in the first place. Right, because it's all the way up there. And if we were, let's say it was three days before we were deciding, okay, we're this is gone from whatever to now, and we're. So you think sixty was too high of a price? No, it's a it's a real fair price. It's that a, fair was a fair price, price, but it didn't have a margin of safety. Right. Okay. No margin of safety. So now it's only going to grow at the speed of BP. Whatever BP grows at, the growth rate of BP is how fast my money will grow once it gets back up to its intrinsic value. And since BP is growing at maybe 7 to 8% a year, that doesn't anywhere get near our required 15% a year. So at that point... Is the growth rate of a company different than our return as investors? Massively. Whole different world. Those are apples and oranges. And it's funny you mentioned that because people get confused about this all the time and think that your rate of return is somehow connected to the growth rate. And that would be true if all prices are equal to values. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Then the only, the fastest you can grow the, the 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 new price of the company is by growing the value, and the value only grows by growth rate. So therefore, you can't 
get a different rate of return than the overall growth rate of the company or the market, whatever you're investing It would be impossible. And so the, the critical thing to understand is that growth rate, in rule one investing, growth rate and rate of return are completely different because we're not paying what the business is worth. Wouldn't that be true in any kind of investing? No. If you purchase it at a lower oh, price. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At any kind, if you buy it much less than the thing's worth, you're um, definitely going to have a higher rate of return than okay. the growth rate of that market. <laughs> it's not a magical It's not a magical <laughs> thing. One. But the problem is, is when almost every other kind of investing that I can think of that's not businesses, it's hard to know what that number is. What's the real value of gold? What's the real value of a Picasso? I don't know. What'd the last guy pay? Right? right, a commodity that's just traded on a market. Yeah, but a farm, you know, that's going to produce cash flow. And if it produces cash flow, I can figure out pretty much what the value is worth. And a business, so farms are businesses, apartments are businesses, right? That's how we look at them. We don't segregate between these groups. They're all just businesses. And if you can buy a business at a significant discount to its real value based on its cash flow in the future and the amount of risk you're taking to get that cash flow, you're golden. So, so last time we were talking about a business that I think was growing at 10% a year and we were trying to get 15% a year return. And it was a little confusing with all the numbers, how exactly you do that. But well, basically, I think it sounds like the answer, tell me if this is right, is that you just simply purchase it at a lower price than its value. Yep. And that's how you create the extra returns. That's right. So let's go back to our $10 bill we're buying for $5. So our rate of return is the amount of money we get on our investment and uh, with time as a factor, right? So we want to look at it on a per year basis. We call that the CAGR, C-A-G-R, compounded <laughs> annual growth rate. I was rate. thinking of a different kind of CAGR. <laughs> exactly. There's a Wall Street term, CAGR. So compounded annual growth rate. That's the key number we want to know. So if we were to buy a $10 bill for $5 and we could sell that a year later for $10, then our CAGR is 100%. We just made a 100% per year rate of return. Okay, a lot higher than 15%. So 15% is our minimum acceptable rate of return. That's not our target. It's just our minimum on how we value something. Our actual target, and you might want to write this down out there, is 26% per year. That's our target. That is a very detailed number. Oh, yeah. Why not 25? Not Why 25, not 27? Not 27. It's 26% per year. In fact, one of my favorite, favorite investors to study is a wonderful hedge fund manager named Monesh Pabrai, P-A-B-R-A-I. And if you want to learn rule one investing, he's your guy. Okay, he wrote a book called Dondo Investor, D-H-A-N-D-O. Fabulous book. You've got to read this book, seriously, if you want to learn this kind of investing. So okay. Monesh has 26 on his license plate. <laughs> so we're just copying him? Is that where you got that number? Oh, yeah. Monash got 26. Buffett should have 26, because that's target number one, is 26. Munger should have 26. Graham should have 26. We're all targeting that. And the reason is, is because that magic number, 26, represents the compounded annual growth rate, the kegger. If you buy a $5, if you buy a $10 bill for $5 and sell it for $10 at the end of three years. Oh, all right. So 
the goal is that we all have Monash, and he's just so 100 return over three years. 100 percent return in three years is a 26 percent per year compound annual growth. And Monash has made that more explicit than any of the rest of the rule one guys. Um, Buffett just is like, hey, I'm going to buy a ten dollar bill for five dollars, and someday I'm going to make money. Well, three years compared to what you've been talking about sounds like short term to me. Well. We are a long-term investor. I mean, Warren's basic idea is that, you know, the right time to sell a company is never. But in actual practice, he sold a lot of companies, especially back in the 50s and 60s and 70s when he had that kind of liquidity and he could move to another one. There's very few companies he has owned that he hasn't ultimately sold. But the ones that he's held on to long-term have intrinsic characteristics that keeps them growing really consistently out into the future. So I think he just doesn't have a better place to put the capital because he's got so much capital in there, right? Really hard to move 10% of the market capitalization of Coca-Cola into something else. Mm -hmm. And so he just leaves it there. But for us, us small guys, we can move it. So for us, what we want is we want to buy this thing on sale and when it goes back to retail, we're selling. And this is how we keep what we call the velocity of money high. What we're targeting is 26% per year, and we're doing that by focusing on businesses we can buy at a big discount to their intrinsic value that have some sort of catalyst that's gonna take them back up to their regular value within three years that we can see in the market. And you know what, most of the time that's what happened. Mr. Market is not stupid. And it doesn't take him that long to get over some brain-dead activity where he sold stuff super cheap. And when he gets over it, those things go back up to their real value. You said a couple of things. One is retail price. Yeah. What's that? Sticker. Intrinsic value, what it's worth as a business um, in the public market. That would be the retail price. Oh, okay. So that's just kind of like a rule one term. Yeah. Retail price. Retail, yeah. Okay. And we want to buy wholesale essentially. Okay. And we want to buy wholesale, sell retail. And this is so important. I think we ought to spend some more time on it. On retail price? On retail pricing, on wholesale pricing, on buying fives and and selling for tens. How much of your portfolio should you be putting in one kind of thing? How long should you sit and cash and do nothing? All that kind of stuff is really important and related very much to uh, this whole concept that Charlie's talking about. Um, about buying things on sale. So I think we ought to come back to this. I just don't think we have enough time to get into it right now. Yeah, I think that sounds like a whole series of podcasts, maybe, where we talk about it in detail. Yeah, I, I think we should dive into that. I think it all focuses on this basic concept of not losing money, which is Warren Buffett's rule number one for investing. And he said there's only two rules. Rule number one, which is don't lose money. And rule number two, which is don't forget rule number one. So for Buffett, It's all about making sure that your focus is on the downside. And that's what we're going to talk about. I'm going to talk about that in terms of the way Manesh Pabrai looks at it, the way Buffett looks at it, and Munger. And let's let's get into that next time. You want to? Yeah. So do you think we're done with Charlie's quote there? We're never done with Charlie's quote. Well, we're never done with it. We love (laughs) you, Charlie. We can keep mining that quote, and it's one minute of Charlie. Yeah. But I think let's go to Buffett next time. I don't think we need to play it anymore for everybody. Let's, Let's play Warren next time. All right. I'm going to play that quote for you for rule number one. All right. So just to wrap up the Charlie Munger four principles, I mean, we started out talking about how you even start researching a company, which I admit I have not started reading Barron's, but 
I will. <laughs> I need to download the app. <laughs> we can certainly come back and, and add a lot of color to that little number because, of course, that's really important. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So understanding the business is you got to be capable of it and you got to know what your limitations are, where are the walls of your canyon, and stay within those walls. And then you got to make sure what you're really doing when you're researching is finding a company that has intrinsic characteristics that give it a moat, that give it protection for the long term. And the reason for that is so you can figure out what it's worth because businesses are just worth the future cash discounted to some price of today. And then you'd love to have really good management, but you know what? If you've got idiots running the company, that's okay because you know why? If that company has a really structured intrinsic characteristics that give it a big moat, even an idiot can run it. And so you're puzzled by that? Buffett said- We spent hours talking about how important management is. It's incredibly important, but the idiot guys won't last long. We'll get good guys in there. The key is that the business can survive while idiots are running it because it has such good intrinsic characteristics. Mm. So we want it's not like idiots. The opposite of a profound truth is also true. You need <laughs> excellent in people full of integrity running your company. But if they're terrible, that's fine too. If it's terrible, the thing that the moat protects you. <laughs> so if you've got guys running it who decide new Coke is a great idea, the intrinsic characteristics of Coke protected that company so that it could be rebuilt. Um, and then we need to buy this thing at a sensible price that is discounted to a margin of safety. And those are Charlie's basic principles, which we can unfold here for years. They're so deep, um, which, of course, he says are so simple that a professor could only spend you know one class on them and then have nothing to talk about the rest of the semester, which is not quite the case, <laughs> I don't think. So I think uh, that's it for Charlie for right now. And then we'll come back with Warren next time and start unfolding this idea of don't lose money. What does that mean? Because yeah, you were just that. saying that all your friends, when you tell them that, do what? They just they roll their they eyes. roll their eyes. So let's take a look at what that really means. Yeah, it means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> until next time. I expect that Phil Town will have some comments. I think we will. So until <laughs> then, right. let's go play. Hey. Okay. Thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like us, please subscribe and leave a review for us on iTunes. You can get our notes and links for this podcast and post comments about this show and get more information about how to invest on your own by going to ruleonepodcast.com. Everything we've discussed in this podcast is either Danielle's opinion or my opinion and is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only and I hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.